0: Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at innovation and the future of software, how software is driving results in industries we never could have foreseen, the coming boom in the world of big data, and how that will enable the next generation of smart products, and what some of the world's foremost thought leaders at the invite-only Fortune Brainstorm Tech Conference had to say about the future of software and more. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is David DeWolf, founder and CEO of 3Pillar Global, one of the Mid-Atlantic's fastest-growing technology companies, and my employer. Since founding 3Pillar in 2006, David has guided the company to a leadership position in the product development services sector, establishing 3Pillar is the go-to innovator for content, information, and data-rich companies looking to grow revenue through software. David is passionate about software product innovation, entrepreneurship, and principal leadership. In 2012, he was named one of smart CEO magazines, Future 50. In 2011, he was recognized by the Washington Business Journal as one of 40 under 40 who are Washington, D.C.'s brightest young business leaders. He writes often on leadership, business, life, and technology at daviddewolf.com, and he has appeared in publications like Fast Company, Pando Daily, ZDNet, and many more. If you've been with us since the beginning, you'll remember David from episodes one and two of the Innovation Engine podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, David. (laughs) Thanks, Will. I'm so glad to be here. So, I have to start things off with kind of a sensitive subject. Uh, oh. Where have you been? We did the first two episodes of the podcast together. We tried to taste innovation together. We did. And then poof.
1: Poof. You never call. You never write. Is everything okay? I, I thought I had to be invited back, and <laughs> uh, you went out and got all these great guests that were uh, just way above me. So uh, I'm so glad you finally reached back out, and uh, yeah, here I am. So it, it should be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Certainly, no one is above you, but we're happy to have you back in the studio for our 25th episode, uh, the silver anniversary here, in a manner of speaking, for the Innovation Engine Podcast. Yeah, uh, and very excited to talk about the future of software with you uh so so let's move on to why we are really here and that is the future of software mm-hmm. you were recently out in aspen for the fortune brainstorm tech conference yes What's the conference all about, and how
1: did you get involved? You know, it, it, it's a great, it's actually a fascinating conference. Uh, Fortune does a fabulous job. They um, they actually, it's an invite-only conference where they reach out to media and technology senior executives and bring them together really to, to do exactly what the name of the conference is, is to brainstorm tech and the future of tech, and um it's just a fabulous um, arena. I would consider it almost a think tank, mm-hmm. right? Where we're getting together at the Aspen Institute to talk with one another. Um, there is a formal program, the typical conference, but it's not just networking in between. You're meeting with people who are living, breathing technology every day and having conversations uh, about what's next, about innovation, about um, you know what are the trends that we're seeing and how can we... Assist each other in getting there. And what I love about the conference, this was my second year going, is that these people tend to get the secret to innovation. And the secret to innovation is not that you have this aha moment in the shower. You know, things don't just happen, oh, wow, all of a sudden I had a great idea. It's that by sharing ideas, By sharing thoughts, by trading information, we're all able to collect dots. And innovation is all about that process of collecting dots, collecting data points, and then piecing them together, identifying those trends and drawing those conclusions that you can apply to a market, you can apply to an opportunity. And so it's very much a conversation about business and how what's going on the market. Can be applied to technology or how technology is being applied to what's going on in the market. It's not a technology conference where we're talking bits and bytes about things, but. The individuals have the deep understanding of the bits and the bytes and what's going on, and and so it's just a, a fascinating conversation. And they have phenomenal speakers, uh, really, that come out and and share what they're seeing and, and is the root or, or the uh, the baseline for the discussions that take place. And uh, so it's it's a great time. And of course, if you've ever been to Aspen, Colorado, um, you know you're talking about the Rocky Mountains and beautiful, beautiful, beautiful location at the Aspen Institute. So um, just high class. Uh, a wonderful experience
0: very nice sounds amazing uh enjoyed reading a lot of your tweets from the event and we'll talk about some of that stuff later as we as we get deeper into the podcast episode yeah um but so so typically at conferences like these there's kind of a huge focus on consumer technology the last time you were here we talked about ces and you'd been out there obviously there's a big focus there on consumer technology uh it sounds like there was also some emphasis at the Fortune Brainstorm tech event on software. So Pivotal's sure. Paul Merritt, for example, spoke about how his company can help increase crop yields by mm-hmm. 10% mm-hmm. if it can get finer-grain data in real time and feed it back into threshing
1: machines.
0: Yep. What else did speakers talk about that really caught your attention is innovative applications of software?
1: Well, so, you know, what I find interesting is I think the um, – The conversation always comes back to software. Um, Software is what makes innovation applicable to the human person. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, one of my favorite tweets, you mentioned mentioned tweets. uh, It's actually my favorite quote. One of my favorite quotes um, was a quote that those who love product – find themselves asking, how do I bring some joy, some delight into a user's life? Uh, Isn't that just fascinating, right? That people who thrive off the world we live in, in this innovation and building products, realize that it's about delighting a customer. And that's where product is different from traditional IT or enterprise applications, right? Those things are forced on people product is about delighting the user. It's about changing the way we live, the way we work, the way we play. And the reality is you do that today through software. Um, So, you know, great example of that. You know, you talk about crop yields, you're talking about sensors within the ground, collecting more data and information and oh, by the way, data and information tends to be at the center of all these things as well, right? Um, But the way you monetize data and information, the way you make it applicable is with the software. Um, And so the conversations tended, even when we were talking about things like wearables, right? Wearables is a hot trend. Everybody's talking about um, your Google Glass, your iWatch, your Fitbit, those types of things. But interestingly enough those things are form factors that in and of themselves don't provide a lot of value. They're collecting data. And every single one of us has a data overload problem right now. Uh, You know, I've got more tweets than I can consume. I've got more data points about, um, you name it, my car, my house, you know, my work, um, than, than I can consume. And so, where these technologies, where these inventions in um, technology and hardware, advancement in computing really hit the road. Where the rubber hits the road is where we're able to use software to take the data and derive insights out of them. And those insights then have to be turned into action. And it's when we make information actionable that it makes a difference within our lives. And so there are two trends that I see happening. And I think this was confirmed at the conference and talked about a little. The first one is this actionability, right? It's taking all this data, boiling it down to the point that it actually improves our lives. It actually improves the way we Work, we live, and we play. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, it's also about that technology, that hardware getting out of the way and boiling down into the things that we're doing all the time, right? As opposed to having an event where we interact with or use a piece of hardware, how does the hardware just kind of sink into the background? and be doing things on our behalf without us even knowing, and creating these actionable experiences um, in a way that is proactive and doesn't require us to think about them.
0: Right. Yeah. Two two guests that we've had on you know, relatively recently have talked about things that, that I think kind of tie back to what you just mentioned. One was Horace Dedue, uh, noted Apple analyst, and he was talking about at the very end of our podcast how... how software is what eventually revolutionized the mobile phone industry. Yeah. You know, until the iPhone was created and, you know, you could run Objective-C apps or, you know, what have you, or Android and Java apps, Uh, you know, a phone was just a phone. Right. But, you know, once they, you know, once they made the leap from just being a phone to, you know, having software on them, you know, it's amazing what we can do with them. Um, and another is is Tim Chow, who was on, and he talked about the the huge influx of data that we're going to see. I mean, if we think we have too much data to manage and comprehend and crunch now, you know, imagine what it's going to be in yeah, five, 10 years that, right. yeah, when the Internet of Things is here and there are right. sensors embedded
1: in everything. Right. Uh, you know, if we're throwing off a lot of information now, just, just wait. And- yeah, I mean, to, the, to that point, the fact that I love is that in the last two years, it's probably the last two and a half now, but um, in the last two and a half years, we'll say there has been more data created than in the history of the world. Right, I mean, talk about mind blowing, right? Yeah, that's how much data that we're creating now, and and that's, I think that's absolutely right, and um, you know, it's. Uh it's something that is just hard to digest. But it goes back to talking about the power of software is digesting and using that information. But then you talk about the software experience and how it revolutionized the phone. Think about the state we're in with these wearable devices right now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There were a lot of discussions about the impact that the Internet of Things would have. And and a big part of that is the sensors out in the fields and the wearables and the different devices connected to the Internet. Well, many people anticipate the impact of that will be 10 times, 100 times the impact of the mobile revolution or of the Internet. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. But when you think about the immaturity of that market, these devices, think about the most common ones, right? The most common ones are, are probably going to be your Fitbit devices, right? those are pretty dumb terminals on those devices. Just Mm -hmm. look at generation one versus generation two. I had a generation one wristband Fitbit device that literally had four dots on the screen and everything it did, it communicated me through lighting up dots, right? Pretty quickly, I'll be honest, that ended up in my sock drawer, right? It was hidden. Well, the second version had a digital face on it. It wasn't high resolution. It wasn't high software, but it had a clock and it had the ability to have a timer on it so I could get more fine-grained and reset the counter so that it wasn't just day over day, but it could be a spurt of time that I wanted to measure. I began to interact with it more. That was all done with software. And while it's not to the point yet where they're giving out APIs and allowing people to program to it, the evolution and the reason why it's now been on my wrist for months and months and months and I still wear it today is because it's replaced my watch. It's blended in to something that I do every day anyways, which is put a watch on. Now I've just replaced it for a new watch that happens to be digital and do more things for me. And then number two, it's been able to provide more functionality because of the software on top of it. And I can only imagine that the next version, at least I hope the next version for Fitbit's sake, includes a way for me to start installing apps on it so that people can provide more value on top of it and I think that's what we're going to see with the next generation of um, you know the watches the the armbands all of these different wearables no matter where they end up on our body no matter where these sensors end up you know even the one in the field measuring crop yields it's going to be out the software on top of it that really adds the exponential value on top
0: yeah and you were uh, you were quoted recently in a fast company article basically about that very thing about how the next generation of software will be the thing that powers the next generation
1: of innovation in the wearable space. Yeah. there's n- There's no doubt in my mind about it, absolutely.
0: Okay, so last time you were here, as I, as I mentioned before, was back in February when you just returned from your first ever CES and you talked about three trends that you saw an awful lot of while you were there, uh, wearables, the connected car ecosystem, and gamification. Were there one or two or three things that you saw and heard about at the conference
1: that you left feeling like, you know, wow, this is going to be the next big thing? Yeah, so, uh, you know, two things come to the top of my mind. One of them says, um, you know, inside I'm saying, yeah, wow, this is going to be the next thing, and and it's one of the same ones I said last time, which I think is whenever you see that trend that over and over again, we all know it. But the Internet of Things and wearables are big. We have not cracked the nut yet because we haven't seen massive adoption because it's not software powered yet. But just because we're not there doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I fundamentally believe and uh, I'm going all in on absolutely this is taking off. Um, That one's obvious, right? Nobody's surprised I said that. Here's the one that's, I'll be honest, puzzling me, but... I'm starting to pick up the trend over and over again. Uh, in fact, at last year's um, Brainstorm Tech Conference, I noticed the same thing. This year, very loud and clear, it's Bitcoin. Digital currency. Um I'm still trying to figure it out. I'll be honest with you. I don't necessarily see it. I can see a lot of the compelling arguments, but I see a lot of adoption problems still. And I don't necessarily see how it's going to progress. But interestingly enough, after noting that and saying, man, even more than before, I've got to take uh, note of this and pay attention to it. What do you know? Dell comes out the very week later and says, they're going to start accepting as payment Bitcoin. That's a pretty darn big deal. Um, And we've had a couple of those types of announcements lately related to Bitcoin. It's gaining traction. I don't think all of the issues, struggles, challenges associated with it are gone. But some pretty smart people are making bets on it. And some pretty smart people are saying it's going to stick. I've got to figure it out. And, uh, you know, hopefully over time we can figure out how it's going to impact innovation, uh, you know, impact, um, you know, Banks, uh, the financial services industry, um, and the the impact that's going to have—it's going have. to be big. I just don't know that we understand it yet, and I'm not sure in its current state that it's going to move forward the way it is right now, or if it's going to have to evolve one or two more times. Sure, but so so
0: one of the tweets that you sent that was on the digital currency front, there was a, a, a quote from one of the speakers, Jim Breyer said there's a shortage of great digital currency companies floating around in five years there will be a couple trading for five to ten billion
1: yeah the interesting part about that quote to me was he said it about three different times in three different ways um really fundamentally believes it and in he's not the only one there um you know, uh, Barry Seibert of uh, Second Market has left Second Market, a pretty darn impressive, successful company that revolutionized the uh, investment community and the way they approach uh, secondary sales of stock. He's left it, handed over the reins to somebody else still on the board, um, but is now focused exclusively on this Bitcoin fund that he he created. Um, Those two aren't the only one. There are more and more people. And fundamentally, people believe it and and there aren't a lot of companies figuring out um, how to play in this space yet i think a lot of people are like me still trying to figure it out um think there's something there but can't make sense of it or really know what that innovation is going to be and you know there there was a i'm not going to say consensus but a loud majority of people that said um people that get into the space right now um are going to do pretty well if they figure it out so did you rush out and sign up for a Bitcoin account? I did not. still <laughs> haven't done it. Yeah, Barry Trilley really tried to sell me on it, um, but... Uh I'm I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'm just not there. Yeah, do you do you want to go in with me or or what? Should we <laughs> should we go buy 10 dollars worth? Or? Yeah, let
0: me see how much money I have on me. <laughs> uh, I have 5 bucks on it. Do, okay. you, do you have 5? Uh,
1: we could we can combine it together. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so so Josh Koppelman of First Round Capital was one of the speakers there and he has some history picking winners. Mm-hmm. His company they were early investors Facebook. in Facebook uh in Square Sure. Speaking of, well, it's not necessarily a digital currency, but it's certainly a, uh, a digital platform. payment platform. Yeah. Uh, and he said he sees vast potential for "quote unquote" next-generation data companies in healthcare, media, and energy. Uh, if you are there, other verticals you see uh, where next-generation data companies could make hay, and uh, and what do you see as opportunities for companies in that space? Yeah,
1: you know, I would actually flip this one on its head. I, I I typically believe that things do happen from a vertical-oriented perspective. I think market insights are insanely important. And when you're deep within a vertical, you can create much more leverage and scale. Data is a really interesting one to me. Do you know where I see the biggest impact? I see our economy being fundamentally transformed based on companies who realize that they have what i call data byproducts that is they have data assets that are the trash of their core business it is the output that it just happens they happen to have data because they're in this business right one man's trash is another man's treasure right and companies and are starting to see that, oh my goodness, I have this data asset that is incredibly valuable, and I if I stand up a brand new business model, a data-oriented business model, if I build a software product to distribute this through a SaaS platform, for example, or through mobile devices, if I build software to interact with my customers in a new way, then I will be able to grow exponentially and have a brand new business model. That's not a vertically-oriented trend. I think there are data information content rich industries it'll apply to more than others but i think by and large across the board we're going to see this trend happening you know take for example just a generic example of your boring old services industry, right, where you have labor that is providing services customized to different consumers, as you look across all the different clients that you're serving within a services industry, um, you know, maybe it's janitorial services, let's say, right, the amount of data about what, for example, let's just pick an example, Um, you know, janitorial services in an office building, okay, What's the type of data, Will, that you think could be collected by a janitor that every single night is in an office building cleaning the same rooms over and over and over and over again? I would think maybe frequency
0: with which a certain trash can needs to be emptied. Absolutely. Uh, Frequency that a bathroom stall needs to be cleaned, number of paper towels that need to be added to the dispenser, uh,
1: how often you change the toilet paper. Yep, Um, you're hitting the nail on the head and just keep going and going. I mean, you rattled that off. You and I didn't talk about this before we started talking. I just asked you a question on the fly. You started rattling off all sorts of things and you're absolutely right. That type of data and quite frankly, a lot of that data they already have, right? they know how many rolls of toilet paper that they're installing because they've gotta keep their supplies. Well, historically we've used that information for operational efficiencies, right? For supply chain management, mm-hmm. right? We we needed to have the toilet paper available, so we tracked that data to be able to make sure it was available when we needed to replace the toilet paper. Well, now companies are realizing that's kind of valuable information. Uh, If I can start to leverage this data and think outside of the box, maybe I can create new business models where I can provide this data in new, fascinating, interesting ways, right? And, um, you know, you and I could sit here and brainstorm and connect a bunch of different dots, going back to innovation, right, around different types of consumers that may be interested in that information. But when you start to put, it's not just the toilet paper data, it's starting to put that toilet paper data together with other things. We could probably brainstorm some pretty off-the-wall types of things where where you know, maybe you're combining it with publicly available health information, and you're realizing toilet paper usage went up. Oh, my gosh, something's going on in this geography. <laughs> you know? There might be an outbreak of something. <laughs> that's exactly right. Now, you know that's kind of a funny, crazy example. Sure. But you get the idea that companies are looking at this data that they've used for logistical reasons and operational reasons, and they're flipping it on its head, and they're saying – I can monetize this, there's a revenue model here. Um, I'm gonna provide this as value to my consumer. And I I think an area where you're seeing a lot of that right now is health and wellness, specifically the fitness area, we're seeing a lot of it. Nutrition is another area that we're seeing a lot of it. Um, But I don't think it's unique to that industry as well. I think it's a general thing. We're seeing it with a lot of services businesses in all sorts of, it's not just janitors, right? It's across the board. You know, one of the areas I think is really interesting is If you look at premium service providers, um, they will be able to reach a new level of customer that can't afford their premium prices with their services by productizing them and offering them as not data assets, but as insights and actionable information through a digital experience. Okay, got it. So there are a few different
0: tracks at the conference, David. One of the tracks was on disruption and innovation, and we've had a few notable guests on recently to talk about disruptive innovation, Uh, Horace Dediu and Whitney Johnson, uh, both of whom are either students or uh, cohorts of Clayton Christensen's. There's been a a bit of a dust-up in the innovation community recently about a New York article that Jill Lepore wrote. That was basically a takedown or, you know, a, a, at least cast some doubt on Clayton Christensen's right. uh, writings on disruptive innovation. Did you get the sense that people are tired of talking about disruptive innovation at the conference?
1: Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't. Uh, here's the thing. I think we get caught up in trying to bucket things one way or the other, right? It's it's there, There's a lot of people, especially in this innovation space, who are stuck on the fact that innovation is only disruptive, right? Disruptive, game-changing innovation. Um, And then there are other people that say, yeah, that concept, okay. But the real innovation that happens is the day-to-day evolution, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's be honest. Both of them matter. and Both of them matter to our economy. Both of them matter to people's lives. Um, People want a better and better experience every day. um, But the game changers in our economy are disruptive innovations. Um, And I think the struggle that people have when they talk about disruptive innovation is that as a whole, we have not figured out how to systematize and make a a standard process that really promotes innovation. Maybe a better way to say it is innovation is not predictable, especially disruptive innovation. Right. Right. Um, And, I think we're going to crack that nut. I really do. Um, If you think about innovation today, innovation is the economic currency that exists. Why is it that Facebook pays $19 billion for WhatsApp? Because they're looking for a game changer. They're looking for that disruptive innovation, that next thing, and they're scared of somebody else coming out and taking their limelight, and they want to capture that user base and that phenomenal growth, uh, and they want to build off of it. And they're not convinced that organically they can do it themselves, right? Otherwise, that valuation just makes absolutely no sense. But when you're in this bet big, fail big, um, you know, high risk, high reward type of environment, those types of things become important for survival. And you see, it's not just that acquisition, right? We could go on and on about the acquisitions that, that all of these large, innovative technology companies make. I believe what's going to happen is as the prices get higher and higher for innovation and for capturing and gobbling up that innovation, companies are going to be looking for an alternative of how do I reliably innovate? And there are some fundamentals to innovation that I think we understand. And we will figure out just like we did with quality in the 80s. How do you take Quality and embed it in the audio industry really is what started it, right? Mm-hmm. I think the technology industry is going to figure out um, how do you reliably innovate within the enterprise as well, and uh, I think you're you're going to start with that coming from the innovation providers and from um, really a partnership model because a big part of where innovation. Um, struggles today is in the bureaucracy in corporate America and um, you know why does so much of this innovation come out of the startup world there's a reason because it's scrappy because there are small teams that are sharing information that are collecting dots and connecting dots and I think that's why it will start outside of corporate America and eventually we'll learn how to do it inside of corporate America as well um, but this is just not sustainable uh, The if the economic currency is innovation, Uh, you know, buying companies for billions and billions of dollars, no matter how big the balance sheets are, um, it only lasts so long. Uh, And so I think that's the root cause of the angst around disruptive innovation. But let's not forget that the incremental innovation, the sustained innovation, the continual innovation is just as important. If you're only taking big leaps you're not going to get there. And the reality is, I mean, look at how many releases of software products Amazon does every single day. It's in the dozens that they're releasing new versions of their software in all sorts of different parts of their business yeah. every
0: single day. New, new builds every 11 seconds, according to a a PowerPoint
1: that somebody put on at the Velocity Conference in 2011. There you go. So you just hit the nail on the head. So um, that's how fast things are changing. And so that incremental in, in, innovation has to happen. The other thing about disruptive innovation, too, by the way, is it's gotten a lot cheaper to do. So you put all those dynamics together, and I think that's where we're headed. Okay,
0: great. So I mentioned earlier the Fast Company article that you were quoted in. Uh, it sounds like we may have you on the editorial calendar of, uh, of a major website whose name will go unspoken, at least for now. But what's the, what's the topic of that article that it sounds like you're going to have bylined?
1: Uh, well, you know, um, there are a few out right now. A couple of things that I'm really interested in. The first one is this concept of data byproducts. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's an article, there's a byline I'm writing right now um, just about my vision for that and how it's going to disrupt the economy and what's happening. Uh, another one is precisely about what we just spoke about um, around innovation and how innovation is not. A light bulb that goes on in the shower. Um, There are certain things that we can do to create a culture of innovation. There are certain things that we can do in order to promote innovation, to make it more reliable. And it's, you know, people tend to think about it in two senses. Number one is the idea. And that they think it just starts with some bright person happening across some bright thing. That's not true. That person, whether they know it or not, has laid the foundation to have that idea well before the idea came to them. And then the second thing people think about is actually building the idea. And that's where you get into the sustained innovation. But again, a successful product and building that product is reliant upon setting the foundation for it and the continual collecting and connecting of dots. And and that's the second thing that I'm writing about. Okay, very nice. We'll we'll keep an eye out for those. Follow at 3 Pillar Global
0: on Twitter to get those updates. And certainly follow David DeWolf on Twitter, at DDeWolf is his Twitter handle. If you'd like to read his thoughts on business, life, leadership, and more, his website is DavidDeWolf.com. David, thanks so much for joining us again today. Hey,
1: thanks, Will. I appreciate it. It's always a blast. Thanks once again to Three
0: Pillar CEO David DeWolf for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have author and journalist Warren Berger on the podcast. Warren is the author of, most recently, A More Beautiful Question, The Power of Inquiry to Spark Breakthrough Ideas, which was named one of Business Insider's 20 Best Business Books to Read this summer. We'll be talking with him about innovation and the power of inquiry. Why, what if and how might we have the power to transform your business? The five most important questions any business leader should know the answer to. And examples of billion dollar companies that have been hatched simply by coming up with answers to seemingly simple questions. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week.